Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we are going to go over chapter 10, which is called God's Contingent Knowledge. And we've been talking about different aspects of God's knowledge and then objections to those different aspects. And then we came up with the argument B, and we've been going over that. But now we're going to kind of talk about a model of God's knowledge that is what we would kind of arrive at within the Mormon view. And this is the one that we kind of want to promote. And so this is what we've been striving towards. And this is the one my dad supports in his book. So pay attention because this is what we're going for here. All right, so I'm going to start it out with a quote from the book, as per usual. It says, Many philosophers have rejected the premise that it is possible to know now everything that will happen in the future. It might be impossible to know the truth of future contingents either because future contingents are not yet true or because it is not possible to know their truth. If it is not possible to know the truth of what will happen in the future then God does not have foreknowledge. Many persons hold that if God does not have foreknowledge of future contingents, then he is not really omniscient, and thus not really God. However, many who reject premise B1, that future contingents have a truth value which can be known, do not thereby purport to reject God's omniscience. They suggest that God knows all that can be known, but that future free acts of persons cannot be infallibly known. Yeah, and so I guess with that said, the next question that comes up then we can talk about is, does this make God less worthy of worship if he is not omniscient in the traditional sense that he knows past, present, and future and all that? And what would you say to that? Well, it depends on what you demand of a being worthy of worship. There are a number of considerations, and that is looking at the assumptions, for instance, of those who adopt the view that God has omniscience, he is omniscient, knows all that can be known, but the what can be known does not include the future. And there's both either an ontological basis for that or an epistemological basis. So take the epistemological basis, there's a truth about what future contingents assert. So there's a truth about whether I will live past 2025. That's not the kind of proposition we're talking about because, you know, it doesn't depend on free will except to the extent it may be subject to, I suppose, people can commit suicide. But as a general rule, I I don't choose when I die. However, to the extent that I have free will, it might not be possible to know what I will do in the future because even though there's a truth about what I will do, that truth can't be known. And that's an epistemological limitation. can't be known because it can't be accessed can't be known because the way that God knows doesn't include experiencing what just doesn't exist yet in reality. Or there may be an ontological basis. There may not be a truth value about it at all because the future just doesn't exist in any way. And there's nothing, depending on what theory of truth you hold to. So, for instance, if you hold a correspondence theory of truth, if there's nothing there in the future that exists yet and you believe that the truth is determined by a correspondence, then There's just nothing there to correspond to, and ontologically nothing yet exists to be known. So what those who accept the view that God is omniscient even though he doesn't know the future, what is it that they assume or believe? Generally, they have five assumptions that they make. The first is that the A theory of time is true, and this that only the present is actual, the past is perfectly preserved in God's knowledge, and future contingents exist but only as probabilistic events or present tendencies that may exist in biological things. So there may be a probability that can be deduced, and if so, then God knows that probability. But there's a lot that isn't subject to probability, and, you know, given the A theory of time, it just isn't there to be actual, to be known. The second is that becoming is as real as being or substance. And so a lot of these philosophers, including process philosophers, give precedence to becoming as opposed to being. Three is that God knows by experiencing or by seeing and perceiving things analogous to the way we do. So God knows what is true because, in some sense, what is interacts with God. And so what is causes God to have a knowledge of it. And so God 
is dependent in some sense on what actually exists in order to have knowledge of it. The next assumption is that humans have free will in a sense that they can act otherwise consistent with all the circumstances that obtain in the moment of free choice. And so basically they adopt a libertarian view and it's not a source libertarian view, it's an alternative choice libertarian view. And the last assumption is that God is in time. He doesn't transcend time. So he's not timeless. He is either a temporal being analogous to the way we are, or he is in some time metric, even though it may not be our exact time metric. So those are the five assumptions. And there's a distinction, as I said, there are two ways that God may be limited. One is an epistemological limitation. The second is an ontological or truth-based limitation. So does that answer your question? I believe so. All right, and then just to read something else from the book that kind of sums that up, it says, God does not know precisely which future choices of free agents will be actual, although he does have a complete knowledge of the probability of such choices for any given individual. And as you can tell, each of those five items that he says that people who usually have this point of view adopt, in the past few podcasts we've gone over the different chapters that argue for these different items, and you can see why we would come to those conclusions are why that is believed that way, at least in the arguments that we've made. So uh, we've kind of talked about this, but can you kind of explain why you call this contingent knowledge? Contingent meaning what in this context? Contingent just means that it's dependent or depends on something for its knowledge. So God depends on what exists to know what exists. It's not like the Thomas view where God's knowledge is logically prior to what exists and God's knowledge causally is a basis for what exists. And so contingent just means God's knowledge is dependent in that sense. All right, and then if you could briefly kind of describe how this relates to the standard definition of omniscience, which is basically for every X, God knows that X. Is this still fit that in your view? Depends on what you take to be X. (laughs) If you take X to be things that either have a truth value or that can be known, then you still have X as in the standard definition of omniscience. I've modified the definition of omniscience to more accurately reflect the assumptions involved in this view. That is, for every state of affairs, SA, if that state of affairs has been actual, then God knows that that state of affairs obtains it as actual. But if that state of affairs is merely logically possible but not actual, then God knows that potentially that state of affairs obtains and the probability of that state of affairs becoming actual. Basically, this view is saying that God knows everything that can be known, and he knows probabilities of things that could be. So he knows what could be, but he doesn't know which actuality or which actual future will become actual. How... Does this view fit with the Mormon view? Mormons have generally acknowledged that God is dependent on what actually exists for his knowledge of it. And so it adopts the primary premise of this view. And a number of church leaders have maintained the view that God grows in knowledge, including Brigham Young, Lorenzo Snow, Wilford Woodruff. And if God grows in knowledge, it must be because he's growing in knowledge of things as they unfold, which would require this view. And so there are a number of early Mormon leaders who almost expressly adopted such a view. Of course, there was a time period when I think Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce McConkie, Bruce McConkie in particular, was on a campaign against this kind of view of omniscience and actually termed this view of omniscience to be a heresy. But in essence, he's saying that the prior prophets were heretics, and B.H. Roberts probably expressed this view most completely in his works. And so B.H. Roberts was uh, 70 during the 1910s and, and 20s, and probably the closest to an actual philosopher being a general authority that we've actually had. So in any event, this view has had a number of very authoritative people who accepted it. It's had a number of authoritative people who've rejected it. But for me, there are a lot of reasons why this view is most consonant with Scripture and with the Mormon Scripture in particular. All right, so before we go into the different sections about this particular view, the crux of the whole matter, as you'll kind of see as we go through it, is based on something we've talked about before, the A theory of time versus the B theory of time. 
And again, the A theory is that the present is the only moment that exists, the past is done with, the future doesn't yet exist, whereas the B theory says all moments of time exist simultaneously, and it is just an illusion, basically, based on our perception of where we are. And everything seems to go on that crux. And the next section that Jacob's going to take asks the question, is contingent omniscience consistent with Scripture? And this is one of the I don't want to say biggest objections, but it's one of the most often raised objections to this point of view. And Jacob's going to talk more about that. You already brought up Bruce R. McConkie and how he pronounced views held by prior presidents of the Mormon Church heresy. And he's known as the great scriptorian. So what exactly in the scriptures is he pulling up and saying, you know, it's a heresy to believe that God doesn't know the future in detail and all future contingents? There are a number of scriptures that say that God knows the end from the beginning. There's not anything save God knows it. And then you get prophecies about the future in scripture that seem to assert that God has foreknowledge of matters that will occur. And so with that kind of support, there are a number of people who read the scriptures to assert that God has foreknowledge. I think scrutinizing those scriptures to see what they actually support is very important because I don't think that they support what those who cite them believe they support. It's kind of like in The Princess Bride. You know, you keep using that term, but I don't think it means what you think it means. And as far as I understand, some of the terms are the things that more modern apostles and church leaders have had issue with is that God is continually learning new and eternal truths, that it seems to say that there's something out there that God doesn't know. And how is this reconciled, or is this even an issue? for the view of contingent knowledge. B.H. Roberts, when he was doing The Truth, The Way, The Life, and I think it's about 1922, held the view, and it's a radical view. It's a view that, that goes a little too far even for me, and that is that God is learning new truths, including eternal truths and scientific truths. And so there may be truths, but God doesn't know them. You know, he never explained exactly why God doesn't know them, but he maintained that God was growing in knowledge in that sense. The problem with that view is there may be foundational truths that would make it impossible for God to realize his purposes, and if he's acting in ignorance about what will, in fact, be the case with respect to basic truths, and you know he's just learning what they are, then it seems to me that he can't really have a plan and ensure that it will be fulfilled. It seems to me that ensuring that your plan is fulfilled requires more knowledge than that. Um, and so I think you can see that you know there is some bite to this kind of a concern. One cannot limit God's knowledge to the extent that God would be unable to fulfill his promises to others, or that he would be unable to save people from all things that may seek to destroy them. And so in that sense, one can see a limitation of God's knowledge that clearly goes too far. Can I ask a quick question? Sorry. All right. In regards to B.H. Roberts' view, do you think, well, not necessarily just his view, but do you think it's possible that God could learn more about particular eternal truths? Like in my experience, for example, the subject of patience or love or attributes like that, you can always learn more about them. There is no limit to how much you can learn about them, even if you're God, I would imagine. There's, there's always more love to be learned or a new aspect. No, what you're talking about is experiential knowledge or things that are learned experientially. And just a moment's reflection will show that there is no possible end to the kinds of experiences that one can have and presumably what one can learn through such experiences because there's such a thing as experiential knowledge dependent on those experiences. And this kind of experiential knowledge, I would think, of necessity grows, is dependent on experience, and as we experience, we gain new experiential knowledge. So it's not really that kind of knowledge that's the concern. The knowledge that is the concern is what if there are basic facts about the laws that obtain in the universe that can obtain in the universe, and he's not aware that actually, you know, there's a, going to be a great big black hole that sucks in all of the universes in the multiverse within about three years. One would hope that God knows more than that, but if there are very basic laws that he doesn't know about, then it's a real possibility that God is just ignorant of those kinds of threats. Gotcha. All right. So you said that there's some of the scriptures that mention God knowing the end or the beginning or declaring the end from the beginning. And one of those examples you give in the book is from Isaiah uh, chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, where he says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. So 
this, as you said, on its head seems to say that, you know, he's declaring the end from the beginning. How can he declare the end if he doesn't know the end? What do you have to say about that? Yeah, this scripture actually doesn't say he knows the end from the beginning. What it says is he's declaring it and that he will accomplish his purposes. In other words, the truths that God knows are truths about what he plans to bring about himself, and his knowledge is a matter of what he knows he has power to bring about and his infallible, immutable intention to accomplish it. If God commits to do something, it's going to happen. And so God has a plan. He's going to ensure that it is realized, and he can declare the end from the beginning in terms of what he intends to bring about himself. And he can certainly know all of those truths. So he knows what's possible, and he knows among those possibilities, those which he will bring about himself, and that in bringing those about, he will fulfill all of his purposes, and that's exactly what the scripture says. It doesn't require omniscience in the sense that it requires knowledge of future contingents. And just real quick, if we could differentiate that from a Calvinist view, because a Calvinist view also says that God brings about pretty much all future contingents, bring about his, his acts. Well, my argument would be they're not future contingents if God brings them about at all because they're not contingent. In other words, if God brings about my acts, then my acts aren't freely done by me. They're freely done by God, and they're not my acts at all. I can't be morally accountable for an act that isn't mine. If God is causing all of my acts directly, as Calvinists and many Lutherans believe, it seems to me there's not only no room for free will, the notion that we could be morally accountable seems to be eviscerated. We've gone through those arguments already, showing that, but the bottom line is that the Calvinist point of view seems to give us a world where God is the only real actor. Okay. I just wanted to make sure, as we're discussing this, that we differentiate that. Moving forward, we'll move on to a gentleman by the name of William James, um, who suggests that God is like a master chess player. Go ahead and delve a little bit deeper into that. Sure. What I'm suggesting is that the kind of knowledge that God has to have is knowledge sufficient to ensure his righteous purposes. So, you know, God doesn't have to know all of the free acts that will be done. He simply has to know all the possibilities that can be chosen and that he has a way to meet whatever occurs in order to ensure his purposes. William James presented a a notion that was similar. He analogized God's knowledge to a master chess player. A master chess player may not know every single move that a novice is going to make, but he doesn't have to to win the game. No matter what moves the novice is going to make, the master chess player has moves that will meet and beat the novice's moves. And the likelihood that the novice is going to beat the master chess player is so remote that we don't need to worry about that happening. So much less even if, you know, if you're playing chess against God, good luck. And so what is being suggested is that God is like this master chess player and that no matter what free choice we make, He has a plan, a contingency to meet it. Depending on whether you choose A or you choose B, he's got a different course and a way to respond that will assure the realization of his purposes. Moving on to just a a couple more scriptures that seem to purport that God can know the end from the beginning in detail. Another one you bring up is Doctrine and Covenants 130, verse 7, where it talks about all things past, present, and future continually present before the Lord. Right, that's not really what that scripture says. What it says is that all things given for their blessing, I mean, pull the scripture out and actually read it. It doesn't say that all things are actually present before God. It says all things for their benefit are before God. In the context, if you read it, it's actually a statement that was taken out of the times and seasons. And what Joseph Smith there is discussing God's plan of salvation and particularly baptisms for the dead and work for the dead. What he's saying is that God has a plan and within the scope of the plan, Everything in his plan is always before him. There's no past or future in God's plan because it's all present before him. The fact that his plan will be realized is just as real as anything that now exists. I read what Joseph Smith is saying in this discourse very differently. It makes its way into DNC 130 in the notion that all things are before God, but if you get out of the scripture, that's not what it says. It says that it's really the angels <laughs> that are before God and that he sees all things that are given for their eternal benefit. So it's not really asserting that, you know, that God is outside of time, as many take it to assert, and it's not suggesting that God knows all things in the sense that everything in the future that's going to occur, he knows with certainty. What it really means is that his entire plan is present before him all at once. 
Okay. And you bring up that First Nephi chapter 9, verse 6 illustrates it perfectly, where it says, But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning, wherefore he prepareth a way to accomplish all of his works among the children of men. For behold, he hath all power unto the fulfilling of his words. Yeah, so this is the interesting thing. God's knowledge of the future turns out to be based upon God's commitment to what he'll bring about in the future, and based, therefore, upon his power and not so much upon his knowledge, <laughs> okay? And so the future is something, if he knows it's within his power, he knows what his purposes are and that he'll bring them about. And so I think that that scripture is a perfect example of the view of contingent knowledge that we're presenting here. Let's talk about the assumptions that seem to be entailed in the master chess player analogy. I think this is really important, and that is, if you look at the way the master chess player analogy works, the first thing that has to be acknowledged is that some of the pieces are going to be lost along the way. Even a master chess player may lose a pawn, may lose a knight. It's not disastrous, but he's not going to go through the game without losing any pieces, and it's the same with God. I mean, the entire Mormon mythos is based upon the fact that God's not going to force us to be saved, and therefore there may be some who aren't. Not everybody is going to be saved or exalted. Actually, if we get real technical about it, everybody is saved. They're just not all exalted. And when we get to the second volume, I'll get more technical about that. But there seem to be five provisions. These are the provisions that I assert are implicit in the master chess player analogy and that provide a complete view of providence on the view of contingent knowledge that doesn't include that God has absolute foreknowledge. First, God is omniscient in the sense that he knows everything that's actual and the probability of everything that will occur. Second, God now knows all things, including the present probability of all possibilities. Third, God knows now what his purposes are and that he will achieve his purposes. Four, God doesn't know now, in every case, precisely which contingent possibility will be chosen or become actual. That's dependent on us. And, you know, there's a world of different choices we can make. And five, God does know now, however, how he will respond to whichever contingent possibility we choose and how he will respond to ensure the realization of his purposes. So those five provisions, I believe, are implicit in the master chess player analogy, but I also believe that they're implicit in the notion of providence that is required by this view of contingent omniscience. Good. Now, moving on to uh Probably the most difficult passages to explain with the contingent view is times where there's prophecies that come to pass, uh, like Christ's prophecy that Judas would betray him or, or the prophecy about Peter denying him thrice before the dawn of the next morning. With respect to Judas, that one's really not difficult to explain because on the view of contingent omniscient, God knows now everything that has occurred. And if you read the scriptures, you'll see at the time that Christ makes this prophecy about Judas, he's already accepted the 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ. In other words, he's already in the process of the betrayal. So it's, it's not real hard for Jesus to make that prophecy because it's already a reality. The toughest one to explain is always, Peter, before the cock crows thrice, you, you will deny me. The open question, this one was suggested by President Kimball, I believe that it's a possible reading of the scripture given the Greek involved, but I don't think that it's one that is strongly indicated in the Greek tenses. And that is that Christ isn't saying what Peter will do, he's ordering Peter <laughs> to do it. Mm -hmm. um, because Peter's so important to the future of the church, he's telling him, look, you know, rather than out yourself now, preserve yourself if you need to deny me. There are a number of other possibilities, and, and that may be the easiest one, and, and it's one that I tend to adopt, and that is that at the time this was written, it was already passed, and so it, was, it isn't really a prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's one that they later interpreted when they saw what came about. And so what Christ is telling Peter is that he will deny him three times before morning comes, whether he actually denies him, he does deny knowing him, but it's not that he denies him in the sense that he denies that he's the Christ or that he denies that he's the Messiah. Mm. He simply denies that he knows him, and so it's left open to a lot of different ways that it could be fulfilled. I don't think that there is a knockdown response to this particular scripture. However, I will say that it's not an instance of predictive prophecy about a future that hasn't yet occurred, because by the time it was written down, obviously it had occurred. Okay. Just a side note, this doesn't quite go with the, the contingent omniscience, but I've heard it said, and, and it kind of resonated with me, that the reason Christ, after his 
resurrected and he's having the chat with Peter about, do you love me? And he does that three times so that Peter is like, yes, I love you. It's because that he had denied him three times. I, I don't know if you think there's any connection there, but. Well, it's a literary inclusion. So yeah, they're related in a literary sense. So yeah, I would say that that's an observation that has some validity as, as far as making sense of the text goes. Okay. Are there any other scriptures that you wanted to go over? No, I think that basically covers the kinds of scriptures that I think pose a problem for this view. Now, let, let me make this observation. The scriptures don't really give philosophical definitions. They're not into defining what omniscience is. And the scriptures seem to be, to me at least, pre-theoretical. That is, they're not really providing theories. They're more lived experience types of sayings. And so the question arises whether we ought to look for scriptures to see um, certainly we shouldn't look to them to find a theology in the sense that they're going to give us a tight definition that we could then take and use throughout Scripture. Mm-hmm. They're written in different places at different times by different people having different views. And so the Scripture's kind of all over the place. That's why it's kind of easy to find a Scripture for about anything you want. You know, the scriptural argument is limited by its very nature, but I think it's at least important to make some sense out of the Scripture in terms of a view that one holds but I didn't come to this view because the scriptures presented. I, I came to the view because it makes the most sense to me in terms of the arguments that I've gone through. After I went through them and after I had already adopted this view, I started reading the scriptures and found all kinds of scriptures that supported my view. In doing this, I join a very long list of Christians who find their own view in the scripture, no matter what that view is. So, you know, let me be upfront about how I came to that. But I just don't think that there is a single scriptural view for just about anything. I think there are scriptural views, and, and some people may have held different views. And so I'm very comfortable. There may be some scriptures that are difficult to explain. There are going to be other scriptures that are more difficult to explain on other views. It's just the way the scripture is. Yeah, and scriptures that have a more positive view or are in agreement with the contingent omniscience seem to be those that you mentioned of the story of Jonah and his prophecy to Nineveh, that they're going to be destroyed, but then they change their mind. And so God changes his mind. He's like, oh, well, they've repented. And then also the book of Abraham, where it says that we're going to be sent down to the earth and they will prove us or says prove them herewith to see if they will keep the commandments or, or do what we have commanded them, saying, you know, this isn't something that we already know. This is something that is contingent. Yeah, and the strongest scripture, I believe, is actually in Deuteronomy and Exodus, where Moses goes up on the mountain, the children of Israel are making an idol. God is very upset, and so he says, look, Moses, get thee behind me, I'm going to destroy this people, and I will raise up of thee a great seed. What he's saying in essence is, look, they're evil, I've had it with them, I'm just going to destroy them all, and every single Israelite in the future is going to be one of your descendants. (laughs) And Moses does something remarkable, he's saying, hold it. You can't do that. If you do that, the Egyptians are going to say, you let us out into the wilderness to do mischief to us, like God cares what the Egyptians thought. And then Moses, you know, you can't do that because you wouldn't keep your promise to me, (laughs) you know, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So Moses argues with them, and in the scripture, God actually changes God's mind. And the scripture actually says that God relents. He changes what he was going to do or what he thought he had planned to do. I mean, the best translation in the Hebrew is that God relented and changed his plan from what he had previously planned to do. And so, this scripture, I don't see how you make sense out of it if God has perfect foreknowledge, because if God knows the future and the way that's required, he's not going to have a plan to destroy all of Israel, knowing perfectly well it ain't going to be, because you don't plan to do something you know can't be the case. And I don't know how you read the story of Jonah thinking that God has knowledge of the future either. And so, while there are some scriptures that are very difficult to explain on this view, and I think there's actually only one, the prophecy of Peter, I think that there are a lot of other scriptures that are difficult to explain if you assume that God has absolute foreknowledge, which, you know, I think supports my view that there are a lot of differing views in scripture. Okay. Now, something else that you bring up I thought was very interesting is uh, prophecies that are, are given by Revelation that don't happen. An example you give is the 1832 Jackson County Temple Revelation. There's, there's going to be a temple in Jackson County, and here we are in 2017, and there's still no temple in Jackson County. Definitely not in this generation, like was said in that revelation. And how does prophecy that has a possibility of not coming to pass relate with contingent omniscience? Well, if it's only a probability, that was the greatest probability 
but it didn't come to pass because there are a number of possibilities, alternatives that can be realized, and that one didn't come about, so God had plan B. I guess we'll take the saints out to the Rocky Mountains where they can gather for a while so people don't keep killing them. Also, some points I want to drive home about scriptures is, yeah, many of the prophecy scriptures, I guess sans the ones that don't come true, but the ones that seem to be predicting the future or talk about the future are basically God saying what he declares himself, what he is going to do. And so it's not predicting the future to say, I am going to do something on Wednesday and then you do it. That wasn't because you knew about the future, it's because you kept your promise, basically. And a lot of those go with that. And the other point I want to drive home is just, as you said, all scriptures, like the Bible, there's not a biblical view because there's not one book of the Bible, for example. The, even the Book of Mormon, I guess maybe the Doctrine and Covenants is one writer, but for the most part, until you get to the end. But all these people are different authors living in different time periods, and though they may belong to like the same ethno group, for the most part, these are completely different time periods and different points of view. And so, like you said, you can pretty much prove or disprove anything you want if you're coming to the Bible with this presupposition. And so it's important to remember that basically what we can get from Scripture, you you can support this view in Scripture, and there's many Scriptures citing that, but at the end of the day, Scriptures are inspired men's interactions with God and then written down to tell a specific story to specific people so they, you know, might say it in a certain way. And also, it's not like history the way we write history now, where it's like a hard fact, this happened. There's metaphors, there's hyperboles, there's all sorts of things. And the fact of the matter is, some of the biblical authors probably did believe that God knew the future, but some of them also did not. Let me give a striking example. The earliest book in the New Testament is probably 1 Thessalonians, and it's very clear that in 1 Thessalonians, the saints then surviving, expected Christ to come right around the corner, clearly within their lifetime and probably within a few years. Second Thessalonians is written in light of the fact they're disappointed he didn't show up when they expected him to. And so we have this change in the view of the early Christians about when Christ is going to come for a second time in power and glory. And the disappointment of his not coming, I mean, it's, it's just palpable. So the earliest Christians didn't buy property, they didn't plan for the future, they really didn't. They expected Christ to come right away. And as time went on, it dawned on them, we've got to make provision for the long haul because he's not coming right away like we thought. So they understood the scripture of Jesus that he was going to return to be imminent and something that would happen in their lifetime. And that's how they understood it. They then reinterpreted it in light of their actual lived experience. And that's the way scripture is. Scripture isn't a philosophical text. As you say, it's more a history of God's interactions with people. And what they're really doing is telling the story from their perspective as they experienced it. And the writers of Scripture have certain presuppositions about God as well. And I believe that Nephi understood God's omniscience different than the writer of the book of Moroni and certainly differently in the book of Alma. And so if you assume that Joseph Smith himself is writing, then he had a lot of different views that he expressed. But I think that they have different views of God's knowledge and God's power. So, you know, there's, there's always this divergence. And even as Joseph Smith, dare I say, grew up theologically, his early views, I think, are different than his later views. And I think, again, precisely the kinds of issues related to reasonable, um, and I'll use the word limitations, that's not what I really mean. I can get more technical than that. But when we're talking about what appears to be limiting God, because we're getting more precise about what we want to say about God, Joseph Smith expressed his view of God differently, and certainly with different implications later in his life than early in his life. So, prophets grow as they learn more, they change their views as they ought to. Everybody changes views as they grow and learns more, at least they ought to. And so, you know, it shouldn't be any surprise. But we get the same thing, obviously. I mean, you've got writers of Scripture separated by literally millennia, and so at least hundreds of years. And they're writing under different very circumstances. They simply have different views, and we ought to honor the text by doing the best we can to understand it. And if we come up with a view, you know, the, the Bible isn't just a book of doctrine written from a single perspective, though a lot of, I think, evangelicals would like to take it that way. It's not a book of doctrinal propositions. It's more a book of lived experience telling about people's experiences, and it can be seen in a lot of different ways. And I think that's one of the strengths of Scripture. It's evocative of a lot of different views. So I don't see that as a deficit. I see it as a great thing. Moving on to the next section, then, is is contingent 
omniscience compatible with spatial temporarily limited God. And this is probably a, a problem or a perceived problem unique to Mormonism, because as, as far as I know, we're the only religion that takes as a doctrine that uh, God has a physical body. And yeah, and it's, it's from that assumption that this problem arises. I mean, if we say that God learns what is true by experiencing it, if we make the further reasonable assumption that if God has a body, he learns because the things around him act upon his body, then God is not only going to be limited in knowledge, he's going to be severely limited in knowledge to what's around him, and it gets a lot worse. Even if you take Proxima Centauri, you know, which is, what, 3.2 light years away, it takes 3.2 light years for information to travel that distance. And if God is located at a particular time and space, how does he get information? I mean, if he's really dependent on that physical information being transmitted to a single location where his body's located, then you've got big problems. Saying that God is omniscient in that kind of an understanding would be rather stretching the word, in my view. So we have to come up with some explanation or, or some reasonable interpretation as to what does it mean for God to know everything, even though he has a body. Now, I want to make a distinction here, and that is that God has a body, not God is a body. So while I say that God has a body, that doesn't mean that that exhausts what God is or that that's all he is. Okay. And then you go on to come up with a notion of divine omnipresence that needs to be adopted if we're going to understand a God that can be omnipresent yet still have a body. That's right. There's an analogy here, and we have to keep in mind that it is an analogy, and that is that God knows everything because everything is within God's immediate experience. And the reason that it's in God's immediate experience is that the light through which God acts upon the world, the world also acts upon God through his light being present to all things. And God's light where he is is just as much a part of God as his body is, and so he's present to all things in this sense, immediately present to them. When I say immediately, I mean there is no mediator. When I say there's no mediator, I mean he doesn't know because things act upon his senses. We know because things act upon our senses. Knowledge is mediated to us through the experience of our cells, which is electrochemically transmitted to the cerebral cortex, which then translates whatever the experience of our cells is in that sense. And what it's really experiencing are the immediate electrochemical signals delivered through the synaptic gaps. And so what we experience is vastly different than what it is we're experiencing, and vastly different even than what the cells in our fingers experience when we touch something. God is not limited to knowing things that way, and, and it's section 88 that expresses that God's light proceeds from his presence to fill all things with the immensity of space. But we don't want to say that this is like physical light either. I don't want to say that God's light takes 32 light years to travel from Earth to Proxima Centauri and nine minutes to travel from Earth to the Sun and 18 minutes for a round trip. What I think these scriptures are saying is that God is immediately present to all things in the way that the light of the Sun is immediately present to everything on Earth all at once. Okay, and this is the imminence of God that we were talking about in earlier chapters, this light. Right, and so to be imminent is for everything to be immediately present and God isn't only immediately present. The scripture says he's in and through all things. That means he's in them and he's through them. And that's much more intense than simply being next to them. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. So what the scripture seems to be saying is that, and I developed this, you know, later, but God acts because his light is present, actuating the inherent capacities in present in every individual natural intelligence, of which all things are composed. By natural intelligence, I mean the subatomic particles and waves that follow law-like behavior. And so I develop an entire theory of natural law based upon this view. We could also say this is the kind of challenge that process philosophers have, because they have to explain how is it that God is present to all things, and he's in all things actually as the initial aim and acts in them, not coercively, but he's actually present to all things in that sense. He's imminent in reality. And so when I say that God is imminent in reality, I want to say he's imminent both as act and as knowledge being acted upon, and it doesn't take time for the information to travel from one place to wherever God's body is. God is already there. He's already there. And so we have a notion of imminent omnipresence. We can say imminent omniscience as well that's based upon that omnipresence. All right. Now, I think that covers that pretty well. All right. The next section is, does contingent knowledge entail imperfection? And if you recall, I think mostly back in chapter two, when we talked about 
Thomism. We've brought up that several times because that's one of the main views that we are kind of comparing against. God's perfection is based on that he can't change or learn something or can't, you know, go for the better or for the worse because any of these changes would mean that he was not already perfect or that he's less perfect. And a gaining of knowledge, even experiential knowledge, seems like it would, in that view, take away from the perfection of God. And so I would say a Thomas would think that this view of contingent knowledge would make God imperfect. What do you have to say about the Thomas having a problem with that? Well, the Thomas are saying, well, look, if God's dependent on things for his knowledge, then there's an imperfection in God because God then is dependent. And things that are dependent are less perfect than those which are totally independent. And the response to that is, is that really the appropriate value judgment? I mean, do we really value a father who is as untouched as possible by the troubles and evils of the world and pains of other people in the world? A father who isn't touched at all by those kind of things, we say that father is a wonderful person because he's totally independent and not affected at all by what's happening in the world? Or do we say that the father who appropriately takes into consideration the pain of others and the joys of others and rejoices with them and shares their pain, which seems to be more perfect? And I think the more personable and more, how do I say this, the, the one whose knowledge is more appropriately related to what is occurring is more worthy of our worship and admiration. So it's a difference in value judgment about what really makes a being perfect. And I don't think the notion that God is dependent makes him any less worthy of worship or any less perfect. Yeah, there's a good quote from the book. It says, It seems to me that the ancient vision which saw God as love demands a view of perfection as the most moved mover rather than the unmoved mover. Therefore, I believe that the objection has little force for those who view God as passable. And we'll talk about passability in later chapters. Passability is the notion that God has acted upon and that his emotions may be affected by what's occurring in the world. All right. And this refers back to things we've talked about. And as Mormons, we probably adopt a view, similar lines along of process thought, meaning, like it says there, that just explaining that most moved mover meaning that God is actually the most related being, as we talked about before. He experiences all things, and they all act upon him to give him more knowledge. And this kind of goes into the next thing I want to talk about, which is experiential knowledge and kind of the value of that. You give an analogy of a computer. Well, I'll just say this analogy. So in the book, there's this analogy. Let's say we have a computer, and it knows all the facts that can be known about a rose and its smell. So it knows all the chemical makeup of a rose. It knows every fact that makes it the color that it is and the molecular structure that will make the light reflect that particular color. And he knows how humans will experience it because of the biological things and the way the human brain experiences it, what will light up in the human brain. But is that the same thing to actually know what it is to smell a rose? Does the computer know what it is to smell the sweetness of the rose? How could it? for it has no olfactory sense and has never smelled anything. I mean, what I want to say is there's only one way to know what a rose smells like, and that's to stop and smell the roses along the way. And so there's this dimension of experiential knowledge. What I'm really counterposing this to is the view that God has perfect knowledge when he has knowledge of all true propositions. So if God's outside of time and he knows because he's the cause of all things, but he knows also by looking at his own essence what things are, as the Thomas maintained, then God doesn't have any experiential knowledge. All he has is experience of himself. He doesn't have experience of the world. And the world reflects somehow what he sees in himself. I don't know how to make sense of it. I've never been able to make sense of it, but I suppose that saying it expresses something. But in any event, God does not have experiential knowledge. And I think that there's a great value to experiential knowledge. And I think it's a defect in God that he can't have experiential knowledge. And so I think that the notion that God's perfect knowledge is a matter of knowing all true propositions can't be an adequate view. In other words, God doesn't only know true propositions and mathematical propositions and things like that. God actually experiences things. And I think that that adds a great making dimension in the sense that it makes God more worthy of worship because he shares with us in our pain, he shares with us in our joys, and he grows through having more experiences. And as I said just a moment ago, 
a moment's reflection will show that there's no limit to the kinds of experiences we can have, and therefore no limit to the kind of experiential knowledge we can have, but it will always be growing as the number of experiences and kinds of experiences we have grow. And then we can backtrack here, but I just wanted to read this from the end. It says, The advocate of contingent omniscience will therefore assert that God knows both the things in themselves by experiencing them and all true propositions by deriving the propositions corresponding to all things experienced. And so this is a more perfect, if you will, view, because he doesn't just have true propositional knowledge, he actually has experiential knowledge. And as we talked about before, I don't remember which section we were in, but if you lose your child and you feel that grief, God experiences that grief, but not as a person without the context and from your point of view per se. He can experience the pain and understand it fully, but it's not him actually having the pain himself. God is not. I mean, he's pained because he's sad for you, but he's not the actual person experiencing it. And let me put this into perspective. This is important. We don't want to simply say that God experiences from a limited perspective the way that a human does. And we don't want to say that when God shares in our sorrows, that his life is therefore less rich. Let me put this into this kind of perspective. And we'll get into this in later chapters. You're in a bank, somebody points a gun at you, you're in fear because you might get shot. God knows that you're in the bank, and he knows you have a gun pointed at you, but he doesn't fear for his life the way you do, merely because he experiences your fear for your life immediately as part of his experience. Moreover, when you experience sadness, God has sadness in the sense that you're sad, but it doesn't destroy the fullness of the divine life. It doesn't destroy his happiness. And so what God experiences, he experiences from a different perspective of the fullness of joy that is present in the divine life. And so it doesn't diminish him. It rather completes him. And it's important to make these kinds of qualifications so that we just don't see God as, as being at the mercy of the world. And I think that's an incredibly important observation because it's easy to mock a Mormon point of view if you want to reduce him to being too much like a human. Right, good point. And also, I'm sure we'll get into this in the last chapter about Christology, but Christ taking all the sins upon him so that he could more fully understand and succor his people I think just to be a Christian in general, you'd have to, at least in my opinion, you would have to hold this view as well. Yeah, I mean, Christianity is, at base, is the super expression of what it is for God to be a human being, right? <laughs> so when we start talking and analogizing God to being human, it's no mere analogy. God became human for Christians, and he wasn't merely God walking around in a human body. He was fully human. He fully participated in what it meant to be a human being. It wasn't just, uh, you know, a God walking around in a human suit who didn't feel pain and, you know, just omnisciently and omnipotently controlled everything while he was at it. But we'll discuss that, as you say, more when we talk about Christology. The last section here is titled, Must God Know Future Contingent Propositions? And to introduce this, I'll just read from the book. A final objection to contingent omniscience suggests that if contingent omniscience is correct, then there cannot be a maximally perfect being because such knowledge imputes unacceptable limitations to God. Those who maintain the view of contingent omniscience maintain that it is not a limitation on God's knowledge if he doesn't know future contingents because it just isn't possible to know them, and therefore God knows all that can be known. This is an important objection. What they're saying is, if you don't believe that God knows the future, you're left with a deficient view of God which isn't really worthy of your notice. And the reason they believe that is if there are truths out there, and most of the people who have this view believe that future contingent propositions actually have a truth value, and we go through what it would be for a future contingent proposition to now have a truth value, the response is, well, okay, on certain theories, there is a truth value to future contingents, but I think the most reasonable view is to deny both the principle of bivalence and the excluded middle for future contingent propositions. Can you explain what those are first? Yeah, the excluded middle is that a proposition is either true or false, and the principle of bivalence is that for every proposition, its truth is determined by the truth of a corresponding proposition. And so when we're talking about these principles, they're logical principles. And if either one of them holds for future propositions, then it seems that God would have to know them, because otherwise there would be truths that God doesn't know. So if you adopt the view that propositions that are about future contingent or future free acts 
must have a truth value, then it seems that God would be deficient in the fact that there would be truths, but God doesn't know them. The easiest response is just to deny that they have a truth value, that there isn't anything that God doesn't know. And the second is to ask a question, look, if it's impossible to know such things because they don't exist, then why should one believe that it's a defect in God that he can't know it if it's impossible to know it? If it's logically impossible to know a future contingent, even if a future contingent proposition has a truth value, it's no defect that he doesn't know it if it's impossible to know. The third observation is one that we've made in the past, and that is it seems that there would be a defect in God's knowledge regarding truth value if he actually did know the truth value of future contingent propositions, because the truth value of future contingent proposition isn't either that in the future I will do X or I won't do X. If it's truly a future contingent, the accurate proposition is I might do X or I might not do X. And, you know, what's the truth of a might proposition? Does it have a truth value? If so, then the will propositions, those which just exert what will occur in the future, can't have a truth value. Because if it's really a might proposition, the might proposition is true or false. So anybody who's going to insist on the excluded middle bivalence for propositions about future contingents is going to run into real problems when we run into the might propositions that we have in English. And, you know, they seem to be contingent propositions that, frankly, if they, you know, I might do that, it's true that I might do that. And it has a truth value. But if it's also true, given any might proposition that I might not do that, and there's a certain reasonable possibility that I won't do that, then the proposition I will do that has to be false. And so my position is, is all propositions about future free acts that are free in a libertarian sense are false. (laughs) There is no truth value. In the sense that they could be true, they're all false propositions. It's not true that I will do that. What's true is I might do that. It could be said that they're not true or false. There can't be facts about things that don't exist yet. Yeah, we could also deny bivalence in the excluded middle and just say that they're indeterminate. But that's, again, to say that might propositions express more accurately what the truth is. There just isn't a truth value. But if that's the case, and the assertion that I will do that when there's not a truth value about it, it turns out that proposition has to be false. And so logically, the only view that you can arrive at is that all future contingent propositions turn out to be false. Because if they might not be true, then asserting that they will be true is false. I guess I understand that, but just to break it down and make it more easily understandable, future contingents, if they're not true, I guess if they're false. But basically, a more accurate way to be say they're probable in varying degrees, meaning one thing is more likely to happen than another, but it could still change if it's one of the things that is brought about by a free agent. Yeah, and the problem with assessing truth in that way is that probabilities are constantly changing. I mean, it's like the bookies in Vegas are constantly changing the odds, right? And so probability is a dynamic, changing type of a thing. And so the omnitemporality of truth doesn't seem to apply to such probabilities, which means that all probabilities, if you make them into a will statement, in other words, the probability is this and will always be this, that's a false statement. So to the extent that probabilities turn out to make a certain probability statement that never changes, there are false propositions. As it turns out, all future tense propositions, even probability statements, can be seen as being false unless you make them dynamic changing truths, in which case the probability statements are forever altering. And therefore, a probability statement made a a month ago is not going to be much use. Yeah, very true. And you can tell, like anyone that buys stock and sees how it is, no one knows. You just kind of hope. And there's so many variables that there's no way to really know. You can have more education and then make a better choice based on lots of information, but you can't for sure know exactly how something's going to perform. Yep. Okay, is there any critical things in the middle part where you talk about Hartshorn's semantics for future tense statements? Yeah, I mean, what Hartshorn asserts is the future tense statements ought to be seen as all, some, or none, but the problem is a future tense statement isn't necessarily a future contingent statement. So what he wants to say is that if I'm asserting that, let's say that Rob will steal something at time T1, if it's true, then all causal possibilities include Rob stealing at T1. If it's not true or false, but has some probability value, then you say that he may or may not rob, and there's a probability statement that explains what he'll do, and it could be false. There are no causal possibilities that include Rob stealing at T1. So he breaks it down, and the reason that this is kind of appealing is that it's the same kind of thing as set logic. In set logic, you have the all, some, or none. So all men are mortal, some men are intelligent, and no men are, you know, rocks. So (laughs) those are the three possibilities for true and false statements. 
And it's a true statement that some men are intelligent, but not all. And so he wants to break it down in the way that set logic is broken down. The problem is that those have to do with the tenses of statements in set logic, not statements regarding future tense propositions or propositions about what people who act freely in the future will do. Moving to the next part here, I think the next critical thing to talk about here is this. I think that even if a proposition about future contingents has a truth value, it may not be possible for any being, even an omniscient one, to know the truth value of future contingents. Yes, what I'm looking at here, and I give an argument for this, and that is that even if a future contingent had a truth value, I think it can be shown that it's not logically possible to know that truth value, and so it's not a defect in God that he doesn't know the truth value of future intent statements. In other words, it's an epistemological issue, not an ontological issue. And then I give the argument. Go ahead. Kind of sum that up. So the first premise is a statement could be known to be true only if those states of affairs corresponding to the statement can be accessed. This is a statement of epistemological access. Remind us what epistemology is, even though we've explained it a few times. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. It's about the kind of things that we can know and how we would know them, as opposed to ontology, which is a theory about the way things actually are, whether we know them or not. So the first statement is that a statement can be known to be true only if the states of affairs corresponding to that statement can be accessed. Now, this assumes a kind of correspondence theory of epistemology and possibly of truth, and so for many this will be a limited argument. But I think it's more than that, where a correspondence theory of truth may be very questionable, and I don't accept it myself, a correspondence theory of knowledge has to be true. <laughs> so it's about what can be known, not what, about what is true. It's about what can be known to be true. And only if I can have knowledge that corresponds to the way that things are can I be said to know it. The second premise is the states of affairs corresponding to true statements can be accessed only if they now exist. So I can't access something to be true, and that is through experience. How could I access anything to know it to be true if it doesn't now exist? The third is that if the A theory of time is true, there is no such thing as a future state of affairs which now exists. That's just inherent in the A theory of time. And so if we assume that the A theory of time is true, then there's no such thing as a future state of affairs which now exists, which entails that the truth of future tense statements can't be accessed, and therefore the future tense statements can't be known to be true by God. So if one accepts the premises that are accepted by those who adopt the view of contingent knowledge, then it's impossible for God to know the future, and it's no defect in God that he can't do the impossible. So basically the crux of this argument, at least as far as this section goes, is whether or not you believe the A theory of time. And that's, you know, up for debate, and there's not really a way for humans to totally know that, but based on many things that we've talked about before and our experiential knowledge and the only way that we can actually make sense of something we presuppose that the A theory of time is true. And it says this argument presupposes that the A theory of time is true, which is certainly controversial. Nevertheless, if the A theory of time is true, it seems to follow that there is not yet anything there for God to see, nothing yet in existence which can cause God to have knowledge of its existence, and in short, just nothing yet there which can be known. And like you said, there's nothing deficient about God to not know something that is not existing. You know, it's like, is God inefficient because he didn't know about, I don't know, like we probably can't even come up with anything that he couldn't come up with on his own, but just, you know, some weird made up illogical thing that doesn't make sense. No, there's no defect to not know nonsense. Right. But here what we're asserting is that there's a truth, and the truth isn't semantic nonsense. It's not like a perfectly round square. So that God doesn't know that there's a perfectly round square is not deficient because there's no such thing. But let's say that there is a truth about the future. God just can't access it. But it's logically impossible to access it if it's not there. And so there's no way for God to access it, and it's not a defect that God can't do what's impossible. And then we come up with a modified definition for contingent omniscience. And it says, It is impossible that God should at any time believe what is false, or fail to know any proposition, such that knowing that proposition at that time is logically possible. And then you follow that up with an important note here. I do not consider CO starred, which is the units modified, to be a sufficient condition of omniscience because it does not necessarily include experiential and perspectival knowledge, but only knowledge of the truth value of propositions. Nevertheless, any being having maximal knowledge must satisfy at least that definition that we just read of contingent omniscience, which thus turns out to be a necessary condition of omniscience. 
Yeah, it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition. So what I want to say is if I had a more complete expression of God's knowledge, it would include within that also that he has every perspective that any person has because he participates immediately in that person's experience and has all perspectives, therefore, and that God has experiential knowledge to the extent that he has experiences (laughs) and not beyond that. Because it's logically impossible to have experiential knowledge without experience, and one can never fully experience everything. There are always an infinite number of new experiences to be had. I would want to round this out in a way and say, well, this is a necessary condition for omniscience, but it's not totally sufficient. It doesn't give you every aspect of God's knowledge that would need to be included if we had an adequate notion of God's knowledge. All right. But it's at least the minimal for, is this related to worship worthiness or just something else? Yeah, if God didn't have at least this kind of knowledge, then he wouldn't be worship-worthy, is what I want to assert. The next point that is important to make is this. I'll just read it from the book. It says, I have suggested that it is reasonable to give up the notion that God has infallible foreknowledge. So, boom, there it is. We said it. That's what we've been building towards, and obviously that's what this chapter is about. We can still adopt the position that God has eternal knowledge of all possibilities and knows all things that exist. Such knowledge is sufficient for faith because it provides God with the necessary attributes to exist and to be the supreme being who is unsurpassable by any other. Yep, that's what it says. So God, at any given moment, is the greatest being, and he's the greatest being possible at that given moment. But God is surpassing himself in knowledge, experiential knowledge, and I would assert power in each new moment of his existence. And so God is a dynamic, growing, living being who surpasses himself. He transcends himself the next moment. All right. And then in closing here, I'll read this as this freedom that we're talking about of this open future. Freedom exposes God himself to genuine risks in a joint venture in which he trusts we will choose to enter into relationships with him. From the Mormon perspective, an open future is what the war in heaven was all about. It is a battle we already fought and won. And you add, It is amazing that so many want to rush back to a world guaranteed by God when the Mormon view of the purpose of life consists precisely in confronting an open future with real risks and guarantees that God will not let us down if we follow his plan. Is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, so notice the guarantee. The fact is, God has a plan. He knows all possibilities, and he knows that among all those possibilities, he nevertheless has a plan, plan A, plan B, plan C, to meet whatever choices we make to ensure that his plan and and his divine purposes will be realized. And so this is a God who is, not only is this God worthy, he's more worthy, because he also participates with us in the mud and blood of our experience. And his knowledge is not only, you know, he shares our experience immediately. So not only does he have his own experience, he shares our experience and grows from that. And he cares about what we experience. He feels pain in our pain and and rejoices in our joy. This God seems to me to be more worthy of worship than a God who's completely independent of the world and can't possibly be affected by it. All right. And as we've gone over here, you know, not having perfect foreknowledge is in no way a scary thing. And so that's what this last paragraph is kind of emphasizing, that some people would say, well, if he doesn't know the future, then he can be surprised and all these bad things could happen and he can't assure my future. But no, like you said, I think the best summation of this is that chess player analogy. No matter what moves are made by any of the free beings, God still has enough power and enough ability to bring about his purposes and his plan. And that's why we can rely on him and we don't need to actually have this fear of salvation not being possible because God could be surprised or there's some act that some free being could do. That's not an issue. Well, it isn't. However, it depends on each person and the choices they make. We may lose the game. And so there's an open possibility. My suggestion is just don't be one of the pawns that is risked in order to save the queen. And also one other thing I wanted to add here that I was kind of reading about As far as God's plan goes, this also opens up something to a lot of people that I think might come up in Mormonism. A lot of people, you know, I guess this is kind of related to patriarchal blessings. So patriarchal blessings, a lot of people take the view that they're some sort of prediction of the future. But it's been clarified multiple times by many general authorities and those that talk about these kind of things that patriarchal blessings are more of a roadmap for a righteous life that you can have. 
Some things might be very specific, but the fact is that this is God's promises to you. If you fulfill your covenants, this is what you can have in store. And so the thing I wanted to cover, I guess that was kind of a roundabout way to do it, is if people mess up or they feel like they've screwed their life up too much, that they've gone off of this predicted future that they feel was in their patriarchal blessing, that they've somehow screwed up God's plan for you, that that's not how it is. God's plan is ready for any contingent, like we've said. And so there is no lesser plan. Plan B is not necessarily the second place or the pity prize for what you could have had. I mean, I guess, depending on how you live your life. No, plan B is for creative people. Exactly. So don't be afraid of plan B. And if plan C comes your way, rejoice that there is one. And if there's plan D, then just know that God is just kind of laughing because you did something that wasn't totally expected. (laughs) And that's possible on this view. Not that it wasn't anticipated, but it wasn't fully expected because he thought maybe things were going to go a different way, which is what the scriptures about his argument with Moses over the future of Israel was about. So, you know, this is a very interactive, ongoing, dynamic, lived reality in relationship with God, and our relationship with God is one that unfolds as the present unfolds into the future in an ever-growing becoming, and the question is whether we're going to stay in the game. All right, well, if there's nothing else, I think we can close with that. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.